Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. The number one podcast for learning and talent development professionals. Now here's your host, Andy Storch. Welcome to the Talent Development Think Tank Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Storch, and I'm excited you're joining me today for another great conversation to help you up your game and improve your capabilities in the world of talent development. Today, my guest is Michelle Moreno, who has a wealth of experience in boosting leadership and communication within organizations. She'll be sharing practical tips on giving feedback, using nerves to enhance your performance, and the power of storytelling in creating great presentations and becoming more influential in your organization. You can expect a down-to-earth discussion on career growth, adapting to technology like AI in the workplace, and the key skills you'll need to thrive in the future. Plus, Michelle opens up about some of the hindsight lessons from her diverse career trajectory, from working for luminaries like Tom Peters in journalism and writing, to getting into acting, singing, and dancing, and then moving more into the corporate space and doing what she does today, which is coaching executives and professionals on storytelling and communication. And just for a bit of flair, we'll wrap up with a surprising anecdote from Michelle's time as a backup singer for one of the most legendary singers in the world. So keep on listening and stay tuned for our bonus Q&A as well, because we've got some great stories and tips in there for you as well. And before we get into the conversation, I want to let you know that Michelle is a member of our Talent Development Think Tank membership community. I think she may have mentioned it during this conversation as well, a community where we are getting together to tell stories and communicate with each other, share best practices and ask questions. And we're actually making some big updates to the community in the first quarter of 2024, migrating to a brand new software platform that I think is going to make things more engaging and more exciting and more fun and more valuable for our members. So if you're not yet a member of our community, come check it out. Our website is tdtt.us slash community. You can also find out information there about our upcoming conference, which we're bringing back in November of 2024, also called the Talent Development Think Tank. All right, without further ado, let's jump right into my conversation with Michelle Moreno, all about storytelling and communication in talent development. Enjoy. I'm joined now by Michelle Moreno, who is a communication and storytelling strategist. Michelle, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. I'm excited to have you on. We've had some great conversations over the last few months since we met at the ATD conference in San Diego and you joined the community and and, uh, I've seen and heard a lot about what you can do in this area of storytelling and communication. Something that I hear more and more about the importance of from different people in different spaces, especially in the corporate space. So I'm excited to dive into that. But I want to get into some of your story because you've done some really interesting things, including starting out with a writing gig for Tom Peters. How did that come about? I had no idea what I was going to do after graduating Stanford because I really wanted to sing and act, but I had to get a job. So my friend said, I have this job interview. I'm not going. I'm accepting another job. You want to go to it? And I was like, sure. And it was at the Tom Peters group. I became an intern. Then I became a writer for his newsletter on achieving excellence. And we were a staff of three. I eventually became assistant editor, just under the editor. And we would make up a theme for the month. And he would direct us and guide us. But we'd go out there and we would get case studies. We would interview companies about their excellent practices. And then Tom 
would write commentaries on it. Hmm. And it was uh, aimed at mid to senior level managers. It was a profit center in our company. So we were well-liked and well-received. And of course, people were such fans of Tom that it was uh, it was a blast actually going to these companies and being a journalist, really. That's really cool. And you know, for those that don't know who Tom Peters is, sort of a, a writer and business management guru, how else would you describe him and the business that he had at that time? Well, his claim to fame was that he was the co-author of a book called In Search of Excellence. And it became, in that time, the 80s and 90s, one of the top selling business books. It was used in the top business schools. And he became an a speaker at one of the highest levels in terms of the money he made and his demand. So he was a top-notch speaker, author, and quote-unquote management guru. Yeah. I'm sure that as you were getting into writing, and I know you also had dreams of acting and singing as well, which we'll get into, but I'm sure you learned a lot from that experience. Any like key lessons that you took away that you still use when it comes to communication and storytelling, the things that you do today? Hmm. I learned a lot from him about how to crystallize ideas that are out there in the zeitgeist. So for example, I just became a member of the Forbes Coaches Council. And as part of that, we submit articles. And I sailed through the process because I understand the way to construct an article so that it grabs attention at the top and then keeps grabbing attention. And he was really good at getting to the heart of what people were thinking. And I, I believe that he taught that to me. What ideas are, are out there? What, what, are people, what has meaning for people? What's going to grab their attention? And so storytelling and knowing what the zeitgeist is saying are two things he taught me. Yeah, I like that. And I also love, you know, just to go back and to where that story started, that your friend had the job interview and didn't didn't need or want to go. And you went instead and ended up getting this job that sort of started the trajectory of your career. I just love how, you know, there's so much that we can do to intentionally go after things that we want, but we can't ignore the fact that there's a lot of luck involved in our success in life as well. But also they say that luck is the, you know, comes at the preparation of hard work and timing, right? Or preparation and timing. And you were doing the work, obviously came with the qualifications, but then also got the lucky break of the interview, I suppose. We always have to be prepared to seize upon the opportunity. We want to be in rooms where those opportunities can be unlocked, mm. but we want to be willing to take that risk. I didn't know anything about business, <laughs> but I knew that I could learn fast. And that's exactly what I did. So don't be afraid to go for something, even if you don't have all the qualifications. It doesn't mean that you're not going to be brilliant at it. It just means you may have to work hella hard at the yep. start, catch up to everybody else. So very true. And speaking of that, you still had dreams of getting into acting and singing. I think you moved to Hollywood. Like, Tell me more about how that panned out. <laughs> well, I was annoyed because the Tom Peters group was not paying me. They only paid me $2 more per hour than mm. when I was an intern, which means mm. I was making $24,000 a year. Of course, this was 1991. So it was yeah. more back then, yep. you know, adjust for inflation and all that. But still it was, it was pennies. It was half of what one of the assistants 
was making, one mm. of the assistants to the exec. And I thought they could pay me more and they just don't want to. Yep. And I didn't even want to know what the other guy from Stanford was getting paid. I thought to myself, I know he's getting paid way more. <laughs> so yeah. I left. I thought, you know, he's not putting his money where his mouth is. Granted, he wasn't really running the day-to-day. He he left that to somebody else. And that person was not treating right. me correctly. So I left. And I said, I'm just going to, if I'm going to make $24,000 a year, I might as well be singing and acting. And I moved to Hollywood. And those initial years were really difficult. I went on hundreds of auditions. And yeah, I would, you know, I would have little successes here and there. But it was hard. It was hard leaving everything behind. Yeah, no doubt. But you can be proud to say that you followed a dream and it wasn't a failure by any means because you did land quite a few gigs and parts along the way, right? Oh, yeah. My career highlights would be, well, I failed on the game show Hollywood Squares. I thought I'm going to be on national TV. I'd done a lot of singing like on stages, live performances, but I'd never been on national TV. And I was so excited because I thought, I've got this. And I didn't got this. I went on the game show Hmm. and the camera light went on and I freaked out and I went out of body and I couldn't even hear the questions that Tom Bergeron, the host, was asking me. I said the same answer to every question. I said, I agree. I agree. I just, I bombed. I failed. I lost. And I thought, oh my gosh. And I cried for about a year, literally went into hiding. I was mortified. And then I thought, is this going to be the end of my story? Am I never going to be an actress? And I said, that's not going to be my story. I I studied. I read about fear, public speaking, what happens to our body, how to trigger positive emotions, how to use nerves just the same way that Olympians do, how to convert the fear into excitement. And I came back four years later, but this time as an actress in a scene with William Shatner on the TV program, Boston Legal. Nice. That's amazing to overcome that, you know, year of of feeling down on yourself to go on and study all those things. I definitely want to get into some of that stuff and turn things around and and land that big role, which, which allowed you to build more of a career in acting and singing. I want to get to where you are today. What does it mean to be a communication and storytelling strategist? For me, I help mostly mid to senior level managers improve their verbal communication skills. So that ranges from executive or leadership communication to being clear, concise, and compelling, to having more influence, to communicating with your body language, uh, to things such as storytelling, even emotional intelligence, and how to bring psychological safety to your team, it sort of encapsulates all of that. But for me, I would say one of my sweet spots is storytelling because of my acting background, because of my writing background. I used to, I used to also make ends meet in Hollywood as an actress by also doing multimedia production. So I was a multimedia producer on and off. You know, I would take a freelance job being a multimedia producer, and then I would switch back to acting and I'd go back and forth to make ends meet. Mm. So for me, verbal communication to be clear, concise, and compelling is what I'm an expert at. What are some of the biggest challenges you see now that you work with corporate professionals who are maybe not communicating effectively or, or trying to become better at communicating effectively? 
one of the tendencies I see is rambling or repetition. A lot of people have this inability to take all of the information that they have going on in their brains, looking at the other person, thinking, what is the minimal amount of information that this other person I'm speaking to needs from me to do their job? And nothing more. Like they have a trouble narrowing down all the information in their head to just that. So I teach them techniques such as pausing before they answer, editing down their answers to three bullet points or less, considering what does the other person need to do their job, which, you know, is going to be different depending on who they're speaking to, right? An executive has a different decision-making process than, say, somebody on their team. So I teach them how to filter so that they don't ramble, to stop themselves from repeating because they worry that they didn't get it all out. Mm. That is one of the one of the more common. People come to me for all sorts of things, and I, there's such a range, right? Everyone's different, but that one seems to be coming up a lot. Yeah, that's interesting. And I can imagine a lot of people, and I've talked with many people like that, right? And everybody communicates differently. Right before you and I started this interview, I had a call with a new person I just met, obviously won't name any names. And this person was doing a bit of that, quite a bit of rambling. I'd ask a question. I didn't really get to ask too many more because it's kind of, they kind of rambled on. And I, I felt myself thinking like, okay, like I get it where you are and what you're doing. Like, I want to ask more questions and move this conversation along. So I understand the, you know, the empathy of being on the other side. At the same time, I can understand or, or imagine for a lot of people that are in that situation, they're worried about sort of providing enough value in that situation to the other people, to the organization. And so they keep throwing stuff out there. And what you're teaching is actually better to be more succinct, as succinct as possible, because that's going to be more valuable to the listener who can then spend their time you know, moving on or talking about other things. Correct. And if you throw out too much information, it's difficult for the person to receive it. Mm. And if you ask them, is there any clarification you want? Or, And then they can just come back to you with a question on whatever it is they want to learn more about. Or you can say, I'll stop there, but I do have three more points. Yeah, And then wait for them to, would you like me to keep going? And they can say, no, actually, I'd like to know about X. But they might say, yeah, I knew that there was more there. And then you can keep going, checking in with the other person to make sure that they're tracking what you're saying. Now, some people repeat in order to be clear. For example, if you're giving a big training, let's say, and you have to give instructions on a breakout session, you're going to want to repeat that. Why? Because it's a big group. Half the, half the people aren't even paying attention. So you got to Get their attention, you know, hey, everybody, listen up. One, two, three. You can hear me. Clap your hands twice, <laughs> right? <laughs> Grab people's attention yeah. and then say the directions twice. Why? Because it's a group and, and not everybody's listening. But if it's one-on-one, -on -one, you don't really have to repeat if you offer clear points, if you offer three points or less, and if you pause in between each point, the other person will catch it. Mm, right, exactly. So when it comes to 
figuring out ways to communicate more effectively. And I want to get into storytelling as well, but I want to connect this to our audience in talent development. You know, why does this matter for L&D professionals now that I know you haven't worked directly in L&D, but you've worked with L&D people and you've been in our community and connected with a lot of people in L&D. So what do you, where do you see the connection there? I see stories as being a way to motivate people to take action. Stories light our brains on fire and they light our hearts on fire. When you tell a story of a character who is overcoming a problem, which in business, that really is the definition of a story. Characters overcoming conflict, drama, challenges. People relate. They automatically think, oh, entertainment. And they get sucked in emotionally. So if you're an L&D and let's say, you want to purchase a new technology, but you know that your higher-ups are going to say, how much? And they're going to push back on the cost. Just ask that company, hey, do you have any case studies of a company that's similar to ours that has X, Y, and Z problems? Get that case study and then just retell the story. Say, hey, boss, you know, I wanted to tell you, uh, there was this company and they were able to reduce their training time by 40%. Uh, They closed the knowledge gap by 90%, and they had a 95% uh, satisfaction rating from all the participants of this training. You want to hear about it? And then, well, yeah, what are you talking about? Sure. We, We have all those problems, so I would love to have those numbers. What are you talking about? And then say, oh, well, there's this woman, Leanne, and she was working at this company and da 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 and they used this tool, blah, blah, blah. And I would love to learn more about this tool. Can I set up a meeting? And all of a sudden, all you've done is just use a case study, a case study from the from that company's website. But mm-hmm. now your boss is suddenly agreeing to a meeting because you were talking about how Leanne, you just pulled the person whose video, who was on the video doing the video testimonial. You now all of a sudden she has this image of Leanne being all bubbly and excited about all these numbers that she was able to pull from this data-rich platform. And that comes from a company called, those are real numbers. Those are that's a real case study from a company called a tendency that does gamification training hmm. and simulation training. And so you can be very persuasive in a way that doesn't sound like a pitch. Interesting. So we're even talking about how L&D people, and because one of the biggest challenges that you know we discuss all the time in the Think Tank community and on this podcast as well is how do talent development professionals become more of a partner in the business, You know, get more connected to the strategy, seat at the table, all that sort of stuff. And, and really- it's about how do you get stakeholder buy-in to invest in talent development, run the programs that you want to run, that sort of thing. And you're saying that storytelling is a really effective way to get better at influencing and doing more of the work that you want to do. Absolutely. And let's say you're an L&D and your higher-ups are pushing for some type of data point on return on investment, right? Measuring the impact, which is a huge challenge in L&D. Go, if you really are, let's say you're looking at the Intensi platform, you can go to them and say, I'd want a case study where you actually served a client and they proved a rise in productivity as a result of this training, of their training that they did with you, that you created for them. Mm, yeah. They'll give you the data points. Then you Then you can go back and say, I know this tool is not only gives you ROI because they did it with XYZ company. But they also have the the data-rich measurements 
within the platform that will allow me to show you whether or not we've gotten an ROI. So we can cut off our investment if it doesn't give us real impact. So stories, it's a way of saying the exact same thing, but getting an emotional connection to be a part of it. So, you know, an L&D person can do that exact same strategy without a story. But if you phrase things in a story format, it allows me as a human being to relate to other human beings' problems. And when we hear a story, it is addictive. It's a Mm. time-worn format that is in our cultural DNA that literally releases chemicals that get us emotionally involved. And that is why it is so effective because people take action when they're emotionally moved to do so. Yeah. One of the things I was going to ask you about was how does storytelling in business help get more things done? How, you know, how is it beneficial to the business? And it sounds like it, it really comes down to communication and influence making people more effective at those things to be able to get things done faster and more effectively. Yes, exactly. Did I mention the the tech company that was having the problem, the um, software as a service company? Let me tell you about them. They were having yeah. this problem, right? Hmm. The managers were being too nice and not giving specific enough feedback or action-oriented feedback, right? So L&D decided we're going to create an art of the check-in training program and we're going to make it mandatory. But when they made it mandatory, of course, they got a lot of pushback. People were like, we don't have the time. We have so much on our plates. Mm. So what did they do? They used storytelling. They knew that if they got an emotional sort of way to relate to people, that they'd get buy-in. So they asked leaders to tell stories of times in their careers when they got feedback from a manager that really helped them. And those stories were so meaningful and relatable that suddenly people thought, well, gee, I don't have to look at check-ins when I give my employees feedback as something horrible. I can look at it as something that's going to change their lives. And on the flip side, the people who were employees who were going to go to their annual check-in or their six-month check-in or whatever it is, they don't have to be afraid of the check-in because they're hearing from these leaders who have moved up in the ranks as a result of getting really good feedback. Even if it's negative or constructive, they can see that feedback can actually be a way to move up, a way to change for the better, a way to advance. And suddenly they're not afraid. And suddenly they want to learn more about either how to give the feedback or how to receive it. And at this company, at this large software as a sales company, they got much better attendance and they got much higher engagement because people were motivated. Mm. Yeah, I uh, I remember that story and uh, what a huge difference it makes. So one of the things I wanted to ask you about, and maybe this is more selfish for me, but I think it would benefit a lot of other people. Something I've wanted to get better at for a long time is storytelling. I know that it would help me communicate more effectively, especially in keynotes, but also with clients and in my business and even just with friends in different situations, right? There's so many benefits. And I'm curious, what what makes a great 
business story? You know, how do we get better at telling stories in business? Well, I have a one minute business story framework that I developed, but essentially in business, you want to tell a story that shows a problem, a character with a problem, which is the definition of a story, basically. And you want to, in that story, overcome the problem so that at the end of the story, you emerge not as the messed up person with tons of problems who couldn't get it done, but as the person who had a problem so that it makes you relatable, it makes you credible because you're airing your dirty laundry. So now whatever you say after that, I'm going to believe you because you've been vulnerable enough to tell me about a big fail, right? But then you turn it around and you emerge as the resilient expert who can be trusted. So in business, you just want to talk about a problem very briefly, not a lot of setup, not a lot of background, just here was the problem in a couple sentences, what you did to tackle it, and then the solution and your fantastic results with a couple of data points to make it really believable. And if you can keep it under two minutes, those are the elements of a great business story. Relatively short, two minutes or less, the problem, how you tackled it, the great results, data points to make it credible, to give me evidence that what you're saying is a business, you know, speak the business language, the language of business, so throw in some evidence and data points and emerge as the trusted expert that I want to take the next step with. Mm, so using data can be really important. And I've heard, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, how can we, especially in L&D, think about crafting better stories? Does this depend, I would think this would depend on the audience as well. You know, you talk about using data, data can be very compelling, but some people love data and some people's <laughs> eyes glaze over, right? When they yeah. too many numbers. Yeah. I would say strike the happy medium between the data lovers and the data. I'm I'm allergic to spreadsheets myself, so I completely understand the camp that can't handle it. So just cherry pick one or two data points. You don't want to make it any more than that. So, you know, for example, in that case study I was talking about earlier, if you're an L&D and you're trying to invest in this new tool, then you just say they were able to do 90% closure of the knowledge gap. They were able to, I mean, so that's just one data point, maybe one more data point, right. and they had a 95% completion rate. Yeah. So the most com the most compelling data, you don't have to include all the data, but what are the most compelling data points that really tell your story? And then it's saying like, instead of saying, I just, I want to get this thing, I think it'll help us. Look what it did for this other company. Exactly. They've reported 90% increase in data connection or 33% increase in retention or engagement, whatever it is by doing this thing. I think we should look at it. Correct. You want to pick the one or two points that is going to be meaningful to your audience. So figure out what's important to whoever it is that you're speaking to, whether it's the group or if it's your higher up, what do they want? Well, gee, they're productivity, productivity, productivity this month. So if I can find a stat about that, great. Or at least something that I can tie to productivity. That's the one that you're going to pick for that person. If you're telling the story 
to a different group, you might pick a different data point. But the point is don't overwhelm people with data. Cherry pick. Cherry pick the best, most relevant data points. Mm, yep. <clears throat> makes makes sense. And I can see how this can really help people in L&D who are looking to influence stakeholders more and the work that they're doing. One other thing I wanted to get to, you know, we have a lot of people that are interested in speaking, public speaking, some people with the same fear that you may have had many years ago. And you said you had a lot of reading and research on overcoming fear to get better at public speaking and converting fear into excitement. And I know you work with a lot of people now on communicating more effectively and public speaking is probably part of that. What are some things that you would say to people who have that fear, which supposedly is the number two fear right after death or the number one fear before <laughs> death. I'm not sure you always hear that stat. It's like the number one fear, death is number two. But you know, what would you say? How do you help people overcome fear to get better at public speaking? Yeah, I think that, wasn't it Jerry Seinfeld who said um, most people at a, at a funeral mm-hmm. would rather be in the coffin than give the eulogy. Right, that's right. (laughs) So I saw something so interesting and I don't know how true it is, it's anecdotal, but it said that maybe we fear public speaking because we think that we're going to die. And here's why. Mm -hmm. Back when we traveled as pack animals in prehistoric times, if we got separated from the group and we were alone, and the group was over here and, and we're over here alone, the predator was going to get us because we yep. were visible. They could see us and they would eat us. And so today, high visibility inspires that same fire flight. Like when you go into complete panic mode, just as if you would, just like if you were running from a predator, because you think you're going to die when you are separate from the group like that and visible to the enemy. And I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. This could be a survival mechanism that gets triggered based on our evolution. People who had the fight or flight response and be kicked in right away survived. So it stayed with us and public speaking, going on camera triggers it. So I saw a TED Talk uh, called How to Make Stress Your Friend. And I also read about Olympians and how they deal with nerves. And what they do is they convert their nerves into excitement. Hmm. And the TED Talk, How to Make Stress Your Friend, talks about how researchers have found that if people view stress as helpful, then it actually helps them. So people who went through stress tests, control group was taught A control group was taught nothing. And then another group was taught stress can be helpful. Hey, did you know that all that blood pumping to your brain is going to help you on this stress test? Hey, did you know that that extra energy you can use for this and this and this? And so the people who were taught that stress was helpful outperformed the people who weren't taught a thing and still thought that stress was a bad thing. So Mm. I, I highly suggest that TED Talk to anyone who's interested. But what it taught me was I can use my nerves to my to my advantage. I can use the extra blood that's pumping and say, hey, this is good for me. I'm glad that my heart is pumping because now I'm going to remember my talking points. Or I can roll my shoulders back and I look more confident if I roll my shoulders back physically. But then I can squeeze my shoulders together, use that extra energy that's coursing through my veins to look confident. So there are ways 
to stop thinking about yourself and your negative self-talk and instead focus on the audience's needs, mm. your intention for the talk while making nerves your friend. I totally get what you're saying. And I, I think the the TED talk you're referring to is that Kelly McGonigal, how to yes. make stress your friend. Yes. Absolutely love that. And I like the idea of shifting your focus to the audience from yourself, because the fear is when you're thinking only about yourself and what's going to happen to me instead of how am I going to provide value to this audience? And generally, by the way, I've found in my many years of facilitation and speaking, the audience is rooting for you. They're not looking for you to fail. But I can see if even if you shift your focus outward, you could just worry, well, what if I don't provide anything of value to them or they see right through me that I'm an imposter or something like that? I imagine that you you deal with people who have those fears as well. Of course. And don't we all have it? I was scared about this podcast. I woke up <laughs> at four o'clock in the morning going, oh my gosh. And why? Why? You know? Yeah. And it's because we all fear judgment. It's human nature. We all want to sound smart. We all want to be impressive and we all fear looking dumb or not having the answers. We literally go into panic mode about it. Mm -hmm. So I, I see that a lot. It's natural. It's human. It's what is it that you are going to do about those emotions? Because nobody can ever not be nervous. If the bigger stages, as, you, as, as I'm sure you've, hasn't, hasn't this happened to you? Andy, where you get into a really big stage that you've never done before, and suddenly that same speech that you've given 30 times is not even coming out of your mouth. Yeah, it's different. Doesn't that happen? It's so big. You're like, whoa, there's a lot of people here. <laughs> you know what is weird for me? I've spoken on so many stages now, and it's not like, oh my gosh, I've spoken on millions, but I've, I've given a lot of keynotes and to different audiences, both in person and virtual, and I don't get that. Ner I always get a little bit nervous, but I don't get that nervous or fearful about the bigger audiences. I often find myself getting more nervous about smaller groups. And I don't know if that's because I feel like I'm now more vulnerable, more connected to them, to their feedback and judgment. And like, there's a fewer people. So I really got to make sure each and every one of them gets value. Just something I've noticed with myself over the, the smaller the group, that's when I end up becoming more nervous about it. Yeah. You know what? When I'm singing, I feel the exact same way. Hmm. And and I think it is, be, I, in fact, a girlfriend of mine did, a, um, I'm friends with Tony Bennett's daughter, Antonia Bennett, and she did this concert. Hmm. And it was literally, we were practically on top of her. It was <laughs> such a small venue. And I was literally in the front row, like literally two and a half feet from her. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I could never do what she just did. Yeah, I would be so freaked out to be singing on top of somebody like that and such a small venue. I, I would probably, I don't even know if I could get through it. Yeah. So there is something about intimacy where you feel like everybody is 100% focused on you because there's just not that much more going on to be distracted mm. by. Yeah. So you feel like you're it, you're the star. And the more the eyes are on you, goes going back to our days as pack animals, the more visibility you have, sometimes the more nerve wracking. But again, no matter what happens, you always can use the nerves and use the stress to your advantage. Know that by understanding it can be helpful that you are going to do better because you know better 
you know that it's going to be helping you. And also, I teach my clients to come up with a mantra that triggers confidence. For example, I have a client and he was feeling a little bit like an imposter. And I said, I want you to go through all the accomplishments that you've had on the job. And I want you every single time you review one and say, wow, I did that. I want you to put it into your memory bank and and allow your mantra triggered by your mantra word to trigger it. So for example, I say I'm enough, I'm prepared and I'm present. And that triggers the work that I've done looking back on my whole career and all of my accomplishments. So whenever I get super nervous, I deep breathe, I say, focus on the audience and I give my mantra and it triggers all of the background, all of the accomplishments that have led me to that moment. So that's another uh, way to drop into a state of presence. Mm, Some good tips right there on storytelling, on overcoming fear, public speaking, stage presence. Uh, Really like that. From your conversations, I know you've spoken with lots of people in talent development now within our community and outside. Anything else you would add that you think is important for people to know with regards to getting better at communication in the corporate world or using storytelling to to become more influential in, in corporate as well? One thing that you can do is use guided visualizations that are little stories. So for example, if I want to teach, say, a training on how to give a great presentation, I might say, everyone close your eyes. So, you know, we want people to take different actions and we could get into learning design and all that, but we want people to do different things and have different experiences to keep things interactive, to keep people engaged. So right away, asking people to close their eyes and really getting them to close their eyes, have them get on camera or have, you know, say, I really want you to close your eyes. Please put down your everything. So make it really clear that you, this is what you want them to do. So now they have a different experience, which is eyes closed. And then say, I'd like you to imagine you've just given an amazing presentation. Your boss pings you to say, stories were amazing. That presentation was so good that you're going to lead the XYZ group. And the XYZ group was the, was the one area, the one group you were dying to lead. Open your eyes. I would love to help you advance in your career like that. So today, let's find out how you can give a presentation as well as she did, right? You know, something like that. So you make up a little imagine if dream scenario. You have people imagine it or even take them through a guided visualization that's it has less details, but ask them to come up with their own scenario. And this is just a way to start a story, even if it's a fictitious one, but that gives them an idea of what's possible and opens their hearts and minds to receiving the information and to be open to change. I like that. I've used visualization quite a bit in the past and I've actually gotten away from it. It's a good reminder to get back into it when you have that really important presentation, keynote, meeting, sales call, whatever it is, or some important things coming up to really visualize how you want things to go and anticipate the things that could go wrong. Uh, Many professional athletes use this, obviously entertainers, performers as well. 
and it can be really effective. So I really like that tip, something I'm going to come back to. Uh, Michelle, this has been great. Uh, so many great tips on communication, on storytelling, how we can become more influential in the business. For anybody that wants to reach out and connect with you and find out more about what you do, where's the best place for them to go? MichelleMoreno.co. So that's M-I-C-H-E-L-E-M-O-R-E-N-O dot C-O. All right, there it is, michellemarino.co. You and I are going to chat a little bit more for our bonus Q&A, but for now, we're going to say goodbye. Thank you again for sharing all the great tips and thank you everybody for listening. We will talk to you next time. Thank you, Andy. All right, that will do it for my conversation with Michelle Moreno about storytelling and communication. I hope you got value from that conversation. I definitely enjoyed talking with her, especially about how to become a better storyteller, how to overcome those nerves to give a great presentation, especially for those that feel those often. I know it can be scary to get up and speak in front of executives or other people. So I hope that if you're one of those people, you got value from this. I certainly did. I still get nervous, even though I'm speaking all the time and have to talk through some of these things and remember the value that I am bringing to others. And I'm also trying to get better all the time at storytelling as well and not just giving people facts and tips and things like that. I know it's valuable, but I also know that people really love and appreciate stories. So maybe look for more of that from me in the future. Hey, speaking of that, uh, if you want to hear more from me as well as Michelle and other members in our community, come check out the Talent Development Think Tank membership community where we meet every Wednesday. We often bring in guest speakers to teach on a different topic or share insights on a different topic where we can also ask questions and have conversations on different topics around talent development. And we actually have Michelle scheduled to lead a session in our community on January 24th about gaining influence with strategic storytelling. So if you're not a member, come check us out. Come join us. Our website is tdtt.us slash community. You can sign up for, I believe it's a 14-day free trial. So if you're hearing this within 14 days of January 24th, you can sign up, come join a couple calls, including that session with Michelle. See if you like it and then decide if you want to stay or you can quit. And it's not a big deal. We only want people who want to hang around and engage with our community. Again, the website is tdtt.us and just click on community. You can also click on conference at the top and find out all the information about our next upcoming conference, which will be in November 2024 in Orlando. I hope to see you there.